Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Again, we're just looking at one very brief four-word verse. Two words in Hebrew. But as you're turning there, maybe you've seen this uh, joke already, but I thought it was funny. Someone... (laughs) I just gave it away. It's not supposed to be, you're not supposed to know it's a joke, but um, someone broke into our, our garage this week and stole our limbo stick. I mean, seriously, how low can you go? <clears throat> and you guys would have been worried about our garage and what <laughs> taken, and I totally ruined it. Not the comedian you thought I was. All right, maybe uh, you think this sermon is, is uh, going to be fairly easy. Right? It's, it's about stealing, and you're not a thief. You don't, you don't think, take things that don't belong to you. You don't receive things that don't belong to you. After getting past maybe the challenges of the sixth and seventh commandment and recognizing that it's not just murder, but it's hatred from the heart, um, and it's not just physically committing adultery, but the lust that we have, those that are not our spouse, Um, we can learn that this principle, this commandment, also has implications well beyond what it states on the surface. Um, So maybe you assume that stealing has never really been an issue for you, and a survey um, that Barna conducted discovered that 86% of adults claim to have met the requirement of the Eighth Commandment. 86% of adults claim that. And um, hopefully you see that's, that if, if you were addressed with that question, based on the way we've been looking at the commandments, that you would recognize how bad of an answer that would be, right? pertaining to any of the Ten Commandments, that, that, it, that it convicts all of us. That's, that's part of the use of the law, right? the moral law, is to bring conviction of sin. And it's the same for this. It's, it's not always easy. right? It's, it's difficult sometimes to experience that conviction, those challenges, uh, uh, when, we've, when we see ourselves and, and the deeds and the, the thoughts that we've had, the com- ways we've communicated that have been unhealthy, um, uh, even offensive to our maker, we can see the same thing here. So you have, uh, we've routinely seen that each commandment on the surface carries these numerous positive and negative implications. So last week we looked at the positive side of this command, this, this call to, to work, to in fact um, protect private property, our, our own private property, but also to promote uh, that protection in the lives of our neighbor. And so there's this good that can be had from the resources that God's blessed us with. We shouldn't be ashamed of that, right? And, and um, so many people are feeling like this sense of shame. Like we come from a, a place of privilege, and so we should feel ashamed of that privilege, and that will give us a more compassionate heart. No, it, it doesn't. It stirs up anger and animosity towards others. So we need to have a right understanding of private property, but we also do need to recognize the dangers. Because the dangers do exist. Right? Capitalism has its limits. Um, it, it can make us extremely greedy right, and selfish with our resources. So we need to be careful of that. 
as much as we, we want to promote uh, uh, wealth in, in, in the sense that we, we would promote it to be used for God's glory and his purposes, we also need to be aware of the dangers that, that lie all around us to entrap us into those resources. Even as we, we read uh, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he's, he's warning them, lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. And if you, if you focus all of your treasures here on earth, you're storing it up here for this experience now, you're missing the whole point. It's meant to give you a greater interest in God's kingdom purposes. So last week, we looked at the positive implications of that command, and you can go back and, and listen to that if you want. But this week, we want to look at these dangers. Calvin said, This law is ordained for our hearts as much as for our hands, in order that men may study both to protect the property and to promote the interests of others. It's not just a selfish thing, but it's the interests of others that we see. And we also then have to deal with the negative implications to see the full picture. Right, we can become so invested in protecting and promoting our own interests, our own financial interests, that we begin trusting in those finances, not trusting in Christ. And so once we settle for a greedy heart, and in fact, even just this week in my, my study of this, was, was reading and considering and listening to some quotes from people who were talking about the, the um, superiority of capitalism, which I agree with in terms of man-made uh, economic systems. I agree with that. But even going so far as saying greed is good, it's good to be greedy because it promotes you know, people starting businesses and then hiring more people. No, we should never get to the point where we think greed is a good thing. Scripture teaches the opposite. So we can easily overdo our, our delight and our enjoyment of some of these American ideals. We have to be careful that we don't intermingle them and marry the two so, so intricately. Um, so it, it, if we have that, if we allow ourselves to kind of settle into that greed, it's not really long before you're willing to extort, even rob and steal from, in, in, in order to increase our own riches. And to begin trusting in those riches, which is a warning from Psalm 62.10 not to do. Right, so the best guard against theft is to lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth, as we read earlier. And so I love the way Jim Elliott puts it, and I added it to your bulletin there. Um, it's, a, it's one of my favorite quotes, missionary. He says, he is no fool, in fact, a missionary who was martyred, in Ecuador, I believe, but uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep. All of these resources, not, you're not taking a U-Haul right, to heaven. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, which is that inheritance that awaits us in glory. Well, let's, before we read this verse, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, again, we, we come before you and we ask you to do a work through your word. We know that it is living and active and sharp. And it's meant to bring conviction. It's meant to divide, uh, to, to, to cause us the kinds of, uh, of friction and tension within our heart that would lead us to repentance. And by your spirit, that you would 
drive us to the cross, to cast our, our, our sin and our shame and our guilt upon Christ to receive that assurance of pardon from him alone. So Lord, we want to truly be convicted so that we can understand all the more the grace that's held out to us in Christ. We need that conviction followed by comfort. So Lord, and we know your word can do that work in us. So give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear that truth. Soften our hearts to believe it and to receive it and to respond to it in obedience. Lord, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Read with me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll see three ideas here, three sections from um, this concept of stealing. Obviously, we're going to go beyond just the verse. We're going to look at other passages of Scripture. I'll be jumping around a lot, so you don't need to necessarily turn there, but you may look at the notes afterwards that'll be online um, if you want to study further the idea. And then, obviously, I also provide you some take-home questions. If you're not in a home fellowship group, take those uh, home to your family and discuss them as a family um, to dig deeper into these truths and to consider how it might impact um, your week even. But the first thing we want to consider from your outline is direct theft. Direct theft. The Heidelberg Catechism question one nine, or 110 calls it outright theft and robbery. It's just the, the outright theft, just taking what's not yours or receiving what doesn't belong, what doesn't rightfully belong to you. Obviously you can receive a gift, but if someone takes and then gives it to you, that doesn't make it any more right for you to receive it. Right? If, if someone has taken what's not theirs and gives it to you. So taking or receiving what does not rightfully belong to you is what is forbidden by the Eighth Commandment. It's simple enough, but do you realize in this time of, of tension around uh, racial topics, do you realize that this would include slavery in its most commonly practiced forms? It's important to understand because so many have a twisted view of scripture that it condones something like chattel slavery. But the most heinous forms of slavery, which involved kidnapping, man-stealing, and then selling, are forbidden very clearly in scripture. If you, if you still have your Bible open, you can turn just one chapter over to 21 and look at verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So to practice chattel slavery is, is capital punishment is the, is the response that scripture gives. One um, prominent example of this would be when Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave in Genesis 37. Remember the prologue. As we said, we look at each one of these commandments. We never want to lose sight of the prologue to the Ten Commandments back in verse 2 of chapter 20. That prologue says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He didn't bring the Israelites out of slavery in order to encourage them to then adopt the practice. And so he, he gives them instruction regarding that. Now, God was not interested in bringing them out of that cruel form of slavery 
in order to allow them to enslave others. That, that would have been a mockery of the freedom that God had provided for them. And there were, though, examples of debt bondage. And someone who couldn't pay a debt who then would enter into slavery in order to pay off that debt. But even that was a temporary arrangement. You have parameters of that given in chapter 22 or uh, chapter 21 of Exodus. Uh, is it 20? Yeah. Yeah, 21 uh, includes some examples of that. So outside or, or slavery in, in scripture is, is much different than we typically associate with the term. When we think of slavery, we think of its most heinous forms in um, our, our own nation's history and in the history of most of the world. In fact, every continent has experienced it. But again, Scripture's clear. In that heinous form, it, it carried the death penalty. So this was elaborated later on by Israelite legislation, and it was made clear in the New Testament as well, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. Slavery in Scripture was, was simply different than we typically associate. But outside of that, outside of chattel slavery, breaking this commandment, stealing other possessions outside of stealing a man, never resulted in capital punishment. If you stole someone's possession, the response was never to kill them, which is actually unique. Many other foreign nations at the time had codes that if you take anyone, any possession from someone, any personal property, that you could be killed for that. No, the scripture's pretty clear in this regard that all these other possessions don't have such severe consequences. So stealing a farm animal, for instance, could devastate a family business. But the penalty was to restore five oxen for that ox. So you were to give five times if you were to take a farm animal when it comes to an ox. If it was a sheep, if you stole a sheep, you needed to restore it with four sheep. So those were significant uh, parameters for, for restitution, for providing rest, restoration for the loss. Um, additional punishments are enforced in various forms of theft uh, or four various forms of theft in chapter 22, verses 1 through 16. Restitution is taken from the transgressor and then given to the victim with an additional amount added on as an appropriate penalty. And the general rule that we find in Leviticus chapter 6 is to add a fifth to the value. So you restore what was taken and add a fifth of its value to that. And then there are some very clear examples where it's more than a fifth, right? But, but that was the general rule. So what is it emphasizing? Why, why is this important? Well, not only is... is Chattel slavery clearly condemned in Scripture, but in general, Scripture emphasizes the value of life over property. Life is more valuable than property. We should treasure life. We should treasure those who are made in the image of God, whether or not they agree with us on everything. We, we want to appreciate life much more than property. So the goal among fellow Israelites was to not only bring financial restoration... But relational reconciliation, there's, there's a, a purpose there to, to go beyond just restoring what was taken, but to amount in a, a relationship that's restored as well. Reconciliation. This principle of um, 
restitution implies that the damage that's been done by stealing goes beyond the item that's just that's taken. It has an emotional impact. Right? It, it has a it has an impact that that does damage beyond just that particular value, the item. So therefore, the parties involved, if there was proper restoration or restitution made, those parties could achieve genuine reunion, right? reconciliation. This is why I think it's, it's important that we recognize Scripture doesn't, that to command future generations to pay for past crimes would itself be an injustice. Deuteronomy 24.16 teaches us that. In fact, you can look there if you're you don't believe me. Deuteronomy 24:16 says, "Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin." We should not read the law in such a way that it contradicts the law. So we recognize that if if there is a sin in ourselves of taking something, we should restore that in our own lifetime. Not expecting some future generation to pay for it. And if we've been the victim of some injustice, you know, we should expect that to be restored in, in, in that lifetime as well. That's, that's this recon, recognition of the value of horizontal reconciliation. But all of that is actually secondary to the importance of a vertical reconciliation. But the two are connected. Right? One could, indulge, could not in, indulge a, a grudge against a neighbor and assume that it would not impact their relationship with God. You bear that, that hatred or that grudge in your heart. Again, we saw that as a violation of the sixth commandment. It's going to impact your relationship with God. So there's a vertical component involved here in stealing. When we realize that, that God owns all creation... We can see how stealing something that does not belong to us is ultimately treated as stealing from God. True restoration has to begin there. It begins with our relationship with God. Making sure that we're right with him. Repenting of our theft in all of the various forms which we've just considered and the ones that we're going to consider in a little bit. We repent of those things and we, we, we seek to be restored in that right relationship with God Believing in his son, the one whom he sent, to bear the, the consequences and the weight of our shame and guilt for breaking this commandment and the many others. And then, in, in that right standing with God, we can go to our neighbor and we can be restored to them as well. Go and be reconciled. So there are also ways that we still, that are less obvious and we have the direct theft. Here also we see indirect theft. And although theft always contains a certain element of deceit, what I'm thinking about here in this category is, is methods devised in order to have this appearance of, of honest dealings. Uh, maybe it's a transaction where a person is, is withholding important information. They're putting it in the terms at the bottom that are too hard to read without a magnifying glass. You're trying to pull something, you know, you're trying to pull something over a person. You're, you're trying to deceive them into an arrangement or an agreement. These things happen, unfortunately. They might include examples of cheating in commerce, 
One of the most common forms of practices at this time was uh, that, that's condemned in, in Scripture multiple places is this use of false weights and measures. Uh, since transactions were conducted based upon weight, oftentimes what would be what shady merchants would have were two sets. They'd have weights that were accurate for, so that they wouldn't be cheated by someone, and then they'd have inaccurate weights so that they could, they could uh, sell less to someone for, for a greater price. And they can manipulate uh, their margins in that way and continue to increase their own margins by keeping those various weights. You can look at Proverbs 11, verse 1, Proverbs 20, verse 10, Amos 8, 5. This was a common practice, unfortunately, for merchants, even within Israel. There's other forms of oppressing the poor and the needy that are very clearly condemned throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Those who were typically unable to do anything about an injustice, even if they knew it was taking place. They simply didn't have the authority to do anything. So some would hold back their product, right? If, a, if a, a grain farmer wanted to increase the price of grain and he was one of the only, maybe he had an, a monopoly on it or he got into an agreement with other grain farmers, he said, hey, let's not sell for the next three months so that we can then wait for everyone to be really, really like anxious for grain so that they'll pay more for it. I mean, you could do that. You just withhold it from them. So they would manipulate the prices in that way. Tampering that price, uh, it's condemned in Proverbs eleven twenty six. There are other various forms of making that dishonest gain. Pursuing business endeavors that are themselves sinful. Idol makers are condemned. Um, right? When we focus purely upon our own enrichment, we feel less bothered about taking advantage of others. And that's clearly what happens even within the covenant community. And when they become so focused upon increasing their own lot. And so this kind of sin is an abomination to the Lord. And yet oftentimes in the modern day, we see the same thing. Advertisements, sales reps who use underhanded techniques to make us unhappy, to convince us that we need something that in fact we don't need. Selling overpriced products. It's the, it's the modern version of using false weights. Kevin DeYoung says, even if interest is appropriate in a free market system, and it is, you, you, that you earn a profit through that, even if there's some interest involved in a free market system, it must not be predatory. Calvin insisted that he set the interest rate in Geneva because he believed that determining interest rates was a moral and a theological issue. I'm not, I'm not in full agreement with the way Calvin established uh, the, the relationship between the church and state in Geneva. But the principle is true. It's a moral and a theological issue to deal with the, the way you handle your business transactions. So it's a moral duty for the state even to abide by the duties of the moral law. Heinrich Bollinger, uh, the Swiss reformer who was a contemporary of Calvin's, in fact, uh, worked alongside Calvin in, in developing the view of the sacrament that we hold to here. Bollinger said this, Those who steal private property spend lives in prison. 
Thieves who steal public property walk about arrayed in gold and purple. He's talking about the statesmen. He's talking about the governors, the authorities, who are thieves themselves. They're, They're arrayed in gold and purple. So the state was oftentimes guilty of breaking this commandment. And today that looks like taxation for overseeing programs that are meant to support the poor but ultimately cripple them. They're not going to be presented like that. But if we're honest about the, 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 the success of our government programs, we'd have to admit that they're failures over and over again. And we continue to support people who promote programs that simply just perpetuate a cycle of poverty. Those who enjoy the greatest gains from government oversight are the governors themselves. Those in positions to receive the benefits of government programs, those in need and poor, remain stuck in that cycle of poverty, never actually getting out of it. And instead, taxes continue to increase. The end result is a rise in bureaucratic spending and a debt that we can never repay. Walter Williams, he's an economist, He points out that the the U.S. spent $250 billion to fight poverty in 1979. $250 billion to fight poverty in 1979. And he, he adds this. He says, had this amount of money been distributed equally to all families below the poverty level, each of them would have received an annual payment of $34,000. Talk about a mismanagement of funds. So just as individuals are responsible for earning and then stewarding private property, so the government bears responsibility to do the same. And we should hold them accountable when they fail. We find reconciliation with God through faith and repentance. And then we walk in that ongoing faith and repentance as we fight the temptation to take advantage of others or to simply be poor stewards of our resources. It should impact the way we vote. It should impact the way we interact with our neighbor. It's because of our union with Christ that we can transform from ourselves being a thief into someone who is generous with our resources. And we can show others the same. And so we want to promote these things in our community and in our culture, even if it's not what they want to hear. So you have direct theft that we've looked at. You have this indirect theft which amounts to just, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, red tape and planning and strategizing that ultimately amounts to taking from the poor and giving uh, to those who already have. Then you have this third point of internal theft, meaning that there, there's an impact This has consequences beyond the physical realm, has an impact upon the way we think, upon the way we feel, our hearts. Scripture acknowledges the internal consequences of breaking this commandment. It's displayed primarily through a distorted attraction to worldly comforts. Proverbs 23, 5, we're setting our hearts on riches. 
Psalm 62.10. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Our tendency is to set our mind on the things we see right in front of us, to want, to covet, to become greedy. And so in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns his attention to the pursuit of money and the anxiety that oftentimes is associated with that very pursuit. The principle is stated well in Proverbs 32, 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. When we make that our aim, we become impoverished. Now, you might be physically enriched, but internally impoverished. In great need of a savior. So just as we may break the 6th and 7th commandment in our hearts, we can do the same thing with the 8th commandment. And so think about the practices of the banking and mortgage industry prior to the crisis in 2007 to 2010. Not that long ago. Most of you experienced that and went through that time. I I worked for a nationwide notary signing business, so I'm quite familiar with many of the problems that contributed to the catastrophe. Property values were sky high. Loans were given to people who should have never qualified based upon their income or based upon their assets. Homeowners were convinced to refinance when they didn't need to. Home appraisers were willing to do their part to assess values at a rate well above what was reasonable. And then once one home sold or appraised at a higher value, it was much easier to appraise all the other homes in that region for a higher value. So it was just this chain reaction that had a devastating impact upon many who got in at the end of that game and became, had a home that was half of the value that they purchased it for just months prior. On the other hand, it's not just the lenders, it's not just the mortgage industry that's at fault there. It was the buyers themselves. The buyers and sellers who were following the money. Some lied about their income or their assets in order to get a loan that was well outside their means to repay. People became rich off of flipping houses. Uh, they, They bought homes that needed a bit of work and then resold them without ever moving in. So safeguards have been have been put in place now to prevent these kinds of things from happening because it manipulated the market. And, and, and the, that manipulation was taking place among all parties. That's, I'm trying to make it clear here that no one was innocent in this. If they were involved in owning, buying, selling, or in the mortgage industry in any way, everyone was interested in increasing their own profit margins. Uh, we bought our first home in 2003, and within two years, it had almost doubled in value by 2005. And then three years later, when we sold, it was just at the beginning of the crisis. We barely made what we owed on the mortgage. We were barely able to sell it for that. So thankfully, we weren't under, but many didn't have that, that same privilege. Again, though, everyone was involved, so everyone was trying to increase their own profit. No one wanted to blow the whistle, but most people knew that we were creating this gigantic housing bubble that would eventually collapse. And greed has a tendency 
to do that to us. It has a tendency to affect us all. Whether we're corporations or individuals, we, we like to talk about the man as if all the problems rest upon management, but the employees are just as culpable. And everyone seems to be doing what they can to get a little bit more. And so last week, we talked about the, the goal of promoting wealth. It's not wrong to want to raise, to, to seek a, a, a promotion in your job. But if greed is the motivating factor, then you'll be willing to take advantage of others in the process. And in the end, you'll never find the contentment that you're actually seeking. So whether we are employed by the government, whether we're business owners, whether we're in consumers or employees, the Eighth Commandment ought to correct our greedy pursuit for more. Michael Horton says, A society cannot last long once it has adopted the view that the community exists to serve the individual. If the community exists to serve the individual, if that's what we're thinking, the, the society is going to collapse. The Christian idea of the commonwealth is taken from this imagery of the body of Christ, a community that depends upon one another, supports one another, bears one another's burdens. That imagery applies to this commonwealth as well in a society, each part supplying its unique role. <clears throat> Horton, this again, back to Horton, a unique role in supporting the whole. No part being despised, regardless of how diminished its role may be compared to the other parts of the body. So some parts are more prominent than others. Some parts have more and can give more. But everyone is necessary to the work that's being done. So I want to conclude by just asking you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> now that we're all feeling tremendously convicted... We need to hear that comfort. <clears throat> Luke 23, verse, verses 39 through 43. This is where Jesus is crucified between two robbers. Mark tells us that these are two robbers. Luke calls them criminals. And in verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do, not, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's, that's the hope for the thief who recognizes his greed, the, the one who recognizes how he's been driven by financial gain. The one who knew no sin became sin. Apply it to this principle right apply it to this particular commandment he who never stole became a thief in order that thieves like that one dying next to him might find contentment and rest in him and jesus took upon himself the shame and guilt of the thief who turned to him in faith and that's that same promise is held out to us 
Again, I want to conclude with Michael Horton's words here from his commentary on this passage. He says, the thief crucified next to our Lord may have experienced the wrath of Rome that dark Friday afternoon, but because of the crucifixion of a man just feet from him, he would not have to endure the wrath of heaven. All thieves who trust in Christ can expect to hear those same words on their deathbed from the spotless lamb. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this convicting but also comforting reminder, Lord, that we have a Savior who, who took all of our shame and guilt upon himself as he bore the wrath that we deserved. <clears throat> Lord, we, our sin is what held him on the cross. Our sin is what he was paying the penalty for. As we recognize that, Lord, we can look to him and we can ask for, for, for his grace and his mercy to forgive us, to cleanse us of our sins. And Lord, to give us a hope that we can now walk by that spirit. The spirit of Christ who was willing to sacrifice the riches of heaven in order to don the rags of this earthly domain. To take on humanity. To become truly human. Not in any way diminishing his divinity, but in fact adding to it this human component, that he might suffer and die in our place. Lord, may we never lose sight of the gospel, even as we feel the weight of the conviction of the moral law. Lord, may it always turn us to Christ, that we would be reminded of the mercy that we find in him alone. Lord, and then in that spirit, to, to strive to be the kind of neighbor that you've called us to be. To show loving compassion, sacrificial giving. To be good stewards of these resources so that instead of being greedy, we might become generous with these resources. Lord, use us in whatever way you've called us to be used in this community. You've opened a door for us to be here and we want to be able to steward those resources for your purposes. So Lord, give us guidance and direction. Give us contentment that we might sacrificially give. Help us to respond once again, recognizing all that Christ has done for us and to survey the wondrous cross in our response. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand um, as I've prayed. Our, our hymn of response is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You can find it in your hymnal on page 338, or it's also the lyrics are in your bulletin. <clears throat>